The conversation you're about to hear was recorded live at Twimmelcon AI Platforms. For more coverage of Twimmelcon, visit twimmelcon.com news or follow us on Twitter at Twimmel AI. But first, a word from our sponsor. Big thanks to our friends at IBM for being a founding sponsor of Twimmelcon AI Platforms. IBM Watson is the company's comprehensive suite of AI tools for the enterprise, which includes Watson Studio, Watson Machine Learning, and Watson OpenScale. The IBM Watson suite allows enterprises to build, deploy, and manage AI models in any environment, including on-premises and in private and public clouds. We encourage you to check out the IBM Data Science and AI community by visiting twimmelai.com IBM. And if you join, you'll get a complimentary month of select IBM programs on Coursera. All right, so super excited to invite up our next guest, uh, Fran Bell. Fran runs a data science platforms team at Uber. Uh, she's got uh, over 100 data scientists working on building tools that are a platform that's at a higher level of abstraction than Uber's already famous Michelangelo platform. Fran? Welcome to TwimbleCon. So I kind of paraphrased your role a little bit. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your team and your charter? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here at the inaugural TwimbleCon. Um, about the charter of the team, the vision really is to provide cutting-edge data science at the push of a button to anyone within the company. So that basically means that we're aiming to transform anyone within Uber into a data scientist. An example of this is forecasting. So forecasting obviously underpins a large number of use cases within Uber. And so the vision here is to provide the latest and greatest cutting-edge forecasts uh, to folks at a push of a button via UI, for example, as integrated into a BI stack or programmatically accessible through our API. And so the only thing that our end users within Uber need to provide is uh, historic data, whether it's, for example, in the form of a CSV file or a query, um, and the forecast horizon, so how far you want to forecast out. And we do everything else automatically in the background. Um, we scan over a whole suite of forecasting algorithms, either those that we have um, integrated off the shelf um, into the platform, um, or also those that we have developed in-house proprietary. Um, and we've gone way beyond um, forecasting in terms of data science areas. Um, other areas that we're investing heavily in, in platformization are anomaly detection, uh, experimentation, more recently also conversational AI and natural language. And then personally, I'm very excited about um, our proof of concepts of also platformizing and semi-automating uh, intelligent uh, insights generation and data exploration. So of those conversational AI seems like the odd man out, so to speak. How, how did you end up working on that one? Yeah, so we see a lot of really great benefits. Uh, we have a lot of conversational AI data at Uber. Uh, one uh, example is our customer obsession ticket assistant, uh, which was one of our first use cases in this space. Uh, so here, uh, for example, we wanted to aid um, uh, customer service representatives in uh, solving uh, customer support tickets that are coming in. And as you can imagine, given the size of our platform, we get quite a few of those. 
Um, and so using natural language and deep learning approaches, uh, we were able to build uh, recommendations for our customer service representatives of what is the topic that folks are writing in about, uh, what are potential actions that the customer service representative might want to take, um, and then also providing um, uh, guard lines or guardrails basically around what could be the best starting point um, to actually address um, the response um, to the end consumer. Of course, the customer service representative always has the final call and say on this, but we saw really great improvements um, in our customer care experience uh, as a result of having this AI uh, basically assisting our customer service representatives. Okay, cool. So you've got this portfolio of platforms essentially that you're building uh, to support these different use cases. How do you know when it's time to platform something? Yeah, that's a really great question. And um, we're looking at multiple different dimensions here and very deliberately see which of the data science areas we want to platformize. It's obviously a heavy investment. Um, and so we look at three uh, items. Uh, the first one is, can the platformization of this area really create step function improvements to our user experience and the business? And so uh, sticking with the example of forecasting, if we can forecast highly accurately demand um, in a particular uh, space and time, we can create more magical user experiences. The second thing is really um, the, the wealth of use cases that exist across the company. Um, of course, building a platform, you want to be able to tackle many different use cases. And so with forecasting, for example, it does span the entire enterprise, um, ranging from marketing to obviously marketplace, supply and demand, uh, financial aspects, operations, um, as well as our hardware. We still have a lot of hardware on premise. And so accurately forecasting the hardware needs, especially on high demand days and special days, such as Halloween or New Year's Eve um, is really important. Um, so, so that's the second uh, aspect. And then thirdly, Halloween is a special day at Uber? Yes, yes it is, yes. <laughs> I yes. that. <laughs> <laughs> See lots of demand uh, on that front. <laughs> And then the, the third dimension really is um, the reusability of the models and methodologies that we apply. Um, and again, with forecasting, you know, a common framework that is needed uh, to build forecasting algorithms is a backtesting framework. Um, so understanding the accuracy of your forecasts, and that really is needed um, for, for any step along the forecasting uh, journey. Um, and so having a, a common central parallelized um, language extensible backtesting framework is something that's really important. So is your team out evangelizing the opportunity to, to platformize and looking for uh, customers that are already working on things that meet these criteria or are folks coming to you saying, hey, we've got these problems, help us solve yep. them. How does the, the relationship with your ultimate customer evolve? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a lot of the product teams coming to us with use cases. At the same time, because we are this horizontal team that spans across the entire company, across all lines of business, we have a very unique vantage point as well. And so we can also gently nudge uh, some of the product teams to come and, <laughs> and join us in this journey as well. Okay. And so uh, when you identify a problem space that it makes sense to platformize, how do you approach that? Do you just jump in and start building, start coding, or what, what does the methodology look like? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So the way we uh, build platforms is in a use case driven manner. Uh, so that basically means that with every use case that is strategically chosen, we augment the platform and we reuse as much capabilities as possible from the platform. Um, and that really allows us to have wins very early on. And uh, learning from this, we actually now have a three-phased approach to platformization. So step one is really consulting. So we have these deep domain experts in particular areas um, of data science on the team. And so we embed them with particular areas of the business where we see opportunities um, of, of having use cases um, in these areas. And so that has a couple of advantages. Firstly, the domain experts learn more about the business, about the opportunities, the pain points, and really can bring back these learnings to then drive the best design for these platforms. It also allows us to tackle these use cases early on um, and really show wins and gain the trust of our partners and leadership uh, on that front. Uh, that, of course, is not a scalable approach. Um, this is why we set out to do platforms in the first place, mm -hmm. uh, but it's a very good starting point. And so the second thing that we usually do is templatization. So what I mean by this is uh, we build recipes, whether it's form of documentation, example, iPython notebooks, uh, providing talks and educational aspects. And this really allows us now to have a one-to-many uh, multiplicative effect uh, throughout the organization. Um, mostly to other data scientists um, that are um, dedicated to these business areas. Mm -hmm. And then over time, as we're taking on more and more of these use cases, we really expand our platform uh, to become more and more self-service and work towards that vision of really providing it at the push of a button without domain expertise required. Of course, including you know, best practices and guardrails in the process. Uh, so in introducing you, I mentioned Michelangelo, Uber's uh, low-level machine learning infrastructure platform. Uh, Uber was one of the first companies to publish about what they were doing to automate machine learning. If I interpret your LinkedIn profile correctly, you were at Uber doing applied machine learning platforms before at least before that article hit, possibly before uh, the Michelangelo effort even started. Yeah. Uh, what's the relationship between uh, these two teams? Yeah, um, we have a fantastic working relationship uh, with Michelangelo as well as the AI organization engineering branch that we also work with very closely to platformize. Um, and we have three modes of interaction here. Um, the first one is, um, as the head of platform data science, I get pulled in into the strategic and vision setting uh, when it comes to Michelangelo working closely with their engineering and product lead. So uh, right from the start, there's a really great collaborative relationship um, that we can build on. And then we have two other modes um, that have evolved over time. The first one, as Michelangelo was more nascent, uh, we deeply embedded folks from our teams um, into the Michelangelo uh, group. Uh, so for example, with the customer obsession ticket assistant uh, example that I mentioned earlier, this was actually the first deep learning algorithm that ran on Michelangelo. And so as you can imagine, um, a lot of the features required for doing deep learning uh, were in a very nascent state at the time. And so having data scientists who are working on this particular problem deeply embedded in the Michelangelo group and working together with the engineers and product managers there to build our capabilities not only to solve the customer obsession ticket assistant case, but also more generic aspects that then really benefited the community more at large um, to build deep learning um, uh, you know, algorithms uh, and frameworks um, was really important here. Of course, um, as Michelangelo has evolved over time and became more mature, 
um, we are becoming more of an end consumer of the platform, um, and uh, it becomes more of a self-service uh, component, mm -hmm. uh, especially with the onset of PyML. Uh, PyML has really provided step function improvements um, to- What's PyML? Uh, so PyML basically allows us to write Python code um, and bring our own models um, that then basically via Michelangelo get deployed in a sandbox environment at scale. Um, and so that really reduces the barrier to entry for data scientists to be less reliant on you know, the native approaches that are already integrated in Michelangelo or uh, software engineers uh, that would help with productionization, for example. Um, and so this approach has become really prominent across Uber um, and, uh, and has really opened up new avenues uh, for self-service on Michelangelo. Okay. Uh, and so with your team pre-existing uh, some of that effort, you've got uh, platforms and, and uh, use cases that you've stood up before they were mature and ready. Now that they're more mature and ready, is it a dynamic relationship in the sense that, you know, there's a... a have you migrated any of those legacy uh, models over to Michelangelo or, um, you know, if it's there and it's working, you're going to leave it alone? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, so we have a couple of aspects here. Uh, one is platforms that are more recent. Uh, so, for example, a conversational AI platform here from the get-go, we built on top of the Michelangelo capabilities and are actively utilizing this. Mm -hmm. But as you correctly pointed out, you know, some of the platforms were built well beyond before Michelangelo existed or was very nascent. Um, and so we have our own independent stacks on this front. Uh, but here it's really important to see the opportunities for integration. Um, and to see a timeline where some of these platforms um, are already or may be merging in the future. And then uh, the third part is uh, platforms that are currently standalone but likely will never merge with Michelangelo. So for example, our experimentation platform, which has very different types of methodologies and workflows, I wouldn't imagine would, would be combined with Michelangelo. Can you elaborate on that? What uh, about the methodologies and workflows makes them um, you know, not good fits? Yeah, absolutely. So um, here we use more statistical approaches, um, so hypothesis testing, multi-arm bandits, etc., okay. uh, versus the traditional machine learning approaches. Um, and so for that reason, we keep them separate. What are some of the key technical challenges that you face for this portfolio of use cases? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So um, each of the platforms is different. We have. Um, different uh, users, uh, different use cases, and so therefore also different requirements on the technology side. Mm -hmm. But I can go into two uh, concrete examples here. Uh, the first one is for real-time anomaly detection. Um, this was actually the first platform that I've built at Uber. And so here the idea is that we wanted to detect system outages as quickly as possible. So people not being able to um, sign in or sign up, um, or perhaps uh, trips uh, being degraded, uh, et cetera. And, um, and uh, here we basically saw that this was still an open research uh, problem. And uh, we set out to uh, build an, a new platform around it uh, and also advance the space. Uh, we have a couple of patents now in that space as well. Um, but here the key kind of requirement beyond the innovation component was that we needed to have extremely low latencies. So um, as you can imagine, because it's a real-time problem, um, we had uh, basically those uh, considerations to take care of on, and extremely high QPS um, because we have um, hundreds of millions of signals basically 
backend as well as aggregate mobile uh, signals that we're tracking in order to understand whether there's a system outage um, going on. Um, another one example is forecasting. As I mentioned earlier, we integrated our forecasting algorithms also into our BI stack for easy access mm -hmm. um, through UIs. And so there's now a really great path where you can query a metric, you can visualize this metric using Dash Builder, an internal tool that we've built. And then you'll also you have this little button that says, I want to forecast this metric. And so obviously we want to make sure that we have a good user experience here and that people don't have to wait you know, minutes or hours. The recurring theme here. Exactly, right? Um, and so having low latency um, for some of these forecasting algorithms is really important. And so are some of these technical challenges ever a, a reason why you might build something from the ground up uh, yourself, so to speak, as opposed to rely on what the Michelangelo team offers? Or is that not a consideration typically? Yes, it does flow into kind of our decision-making uh, process here in terms of uh, what is already available, how easily it is extensible, um, and often a timing kind of component comes in, as mm -hmm. we discussed earlier, in terms of, you know, where was Michelangelo when we started to build um, and, and how can we evolve that in the future. Can you talk a little bit about the technology stack that your platforms tend to yeah. rely on? Do you have your own kind of, not Michelangelo, but you know, you've got these higher level platforms that are very application or use case focused. Do you have your own kind of intermediate level of abstraction or are you building kind of use cases uh, more independently? Um, so when we don't uh, build on top of Michelangelo, uh, which is quite a few of our platforms, um, we build microservice architectures. Um, we build them in Go and Java, actually, for okay. um, uh, performance reasons. Mm -hmm. um, databases are typically in MySQL. Um, then we, we run our instances typically on-prem um, for efficiency reasons. Um, and then several of our use cases are batch and offline, uh, especially on the training side. Um, but for those that we discussed earlier where latency is, is something that we want to focus on, we use caching for optimization. Mm -hmm. And do you rely heavily on open source in this area or publish open source in this area? Yeah, both. Um, so um, we're definitely building on the shoulder of giants and using open source wherever possible. Um, I think Uber wouldn't have evolved as quickly um, if it wasn't for open source. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, utilizing the methodologies uh, that have been developed by the communities is very essential. Uh, but we also are heavily invested in open sourcing ourselves as well. And we have quite a few open source projects. Um, if we look at the data science domain, um, there are quite a few examples here as well. Um, we have uh, Pyro that was developed by the AI organization, which is a probabilistic programming language. We have Horovod um, that is a distributed deep learning framework on TensorFlow um, that has gained a lot of popularity in the community. Mm -hmm. There is Ludwig um, that was also uh, built by the AI organization, uh, which allows for a deep learning framework where you actually don't have to write code anymore uh, to deploy um, and train models. Um, and then more recently, um, our org has worked together uh, with the AI organization to develop Play-Doh. Um, this is a very flexible um, and use case rich platform that allows for conversational AI, um, especially in the research and prototyping phase. Um, and then also um, our uh, causal ML package. Uh, it's a Python package that we recently launched in collaboration with our marketing team uh, that uh, 
basically uh, covers uh, uplift modeling use cases, um, as well as um, causal inference in combination with machine learning. So yeah, quite a lot of efforts um, uh, in that direction, and we're considering to do more. Mm -hmm. And with, with so much out and available in open source that you're incorporating into these systems that you're building, uh, reminds me a little bit of a podcast that we published not too long ago, a quote that the, the, the guest mentioned that became the title of the podcast was machine learning or AI is a systems engineering problem. I wonder how much of what you're doing is systems engineering, connecting mm -hmm. pieces that, mm -hmm. you know, in, in many cases exist already versus kind of pure yeah. innovation and building new stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely a combination of both, um, especially because we want to be fast to market with a lot of these things. So we leverage whatever is already there. Um, but often, more often than not, actually, we need to not only deploy the cutting edge, but actually be and define the cutting edge as well. Mm -hmm. um, and as, as I was hinting a little bit earlier, one example is the real-time anomaly detection uh, platform that I built when I joined Uber about five years ago. Um, and so here it became very quickly clear that with the scale that we're operating at, the real-time nature, the signal-to-noise ratio, because we actually would be sending pager-duty alerts um, that would wake people up potentially in the middle of the night uh, mm -hmm. if our algorithm thought there was a system outage going on. Um, and so we were able to break new ground very quickly in this space. Um, and uh, one other thing that really helped develop these algorithms uh, to the um, precision recall that we needed was I put myself on on call. I was very customer obsessed. At we're this in the point. pager. Sorry? Wearing the pager? Yes, wearing the pager um, for six teams, uh, multiple consecutive weeks. I can tell you I did not sleep much. I was woken up <laughs> a lot during this time. Um, but that also helped to improve the algorithms really quickly. Um, and to Makes you want to get it right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Um, your team is kind of building very use case specific things, you know, very close to the end user, mm -hmm. doing low level kind of infrastructure yeah. uh, as well to support all of this. How do you organize, uh, uh, how do you build an organization to support all of this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so we are organized by a data science expertise. So we have a forecasting team, a knowledge detection team, experimentation team, Convi team, computer vision team, et cetera, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and then, um, as many other companies, we are cross-functionally organized. So mm -hmm. we have data scientists, um, and engineers, product managers designing, working together, basically building all of these platforms. Uh, when we zoom into the data scientists, um, uh, we tend to hire full-stack data scientists for these roles, um, exactly for the reason that you described. We see a lot of advantages uh, to having folks who can write production-level code in addition to having this deep domain expertise in a particular data science area. Um, and, and some of the advantages we see here already start in the design phase. So having somebody who has deep understanding about the constraints um, of the infrastructure stack um, as we're developing a lot of these things at scale with latency constraints uh, can be highly advantageous because things that might look good on paper um, might actually not work in the real world once we deploy it um, in these ecosystems. Um, the Do you second have examples of that? Things that look good on paper that uh, didn't actually work out? Yeah, so uh, coming back again to the real-time anomaly detection uh, framework. So 
at the beginning, uh, we were developing algorithms that would have extremely fine granular data points. Um, so we obviously want to have near real-time signal. And so we wanted to have um, an understanding minute by minute um, or even in finer granularity what was going on. And so originally we designed an algorithm that would require you know, multiple weeks of data to train. Uh, one, one way of how we did this is to frame it as a forecasting problem um, and then have that minute granularity. Um, and that obviously would be an extremely large overhead uh, onto our database uh, systems uh, on that front. And so we basically designed the algorithm in such a way that we have um, lower coarser granularity um, in more historic kind of aspects and then very fine granularities overlaid as a secondary step um, in order to still capture the variance on, for example, a minute by minute level. So just having that kind of constraint in mind uh, made sure that we didn't uh, require unnecessarily um, high kind of overheads on our databases and unnecessary infrastructure cost as a result. Um, so that's one example okay. uh, on that front. Example, another example of, of where we see a lot of advantages for having full stack data scientists is in the productionization step. Um, so uh, here we're trying to avoid handoffs um, in terms of a data scientist writing a script or a white paper and then you know, providing it to a software engineer. Um, we see a lot of opportunities for um, errors uh, on that front, logical errors in particular. And so having data scientists to also write the production level code um, without such a handoff step um, is, is really important to us. Um, and then finally, also developer velocity. Um, so um, as we all know, there is this um, prototyping step involved and we're trying to exceed some threshold criterion that we've uh, set out um, in the beginning of the design phase. And it's of course not known when are we gonna exceed basically this threshold criterion. Um, and so that can lead then to lag times. Once you have actually found an algorithm you want to productionize, um, that software engineer might be busy with other things during that time. And so again, having uh, data scientists who can write production level code can really also help uh, speed up that innovation cycle as well. Mm. Uh, you mentioned developer velocity, and that makes me think of kind of velocity in the sense of agile methodologies. Do you mean it that concretely? And is there a, a methodology that you've kind of evolved to or developed that uh, works well in the context of these types of problems? Mm -hmm. um, so the way we work is very closely in software engineering kind of principles, um, okay. it, both in terms of best practices, in terms of our working structure. Uh, we work on a daily basis hand in hand with software engineers, so mm -hmm. we have developed a lot of this. But uh, I think you bring up a really good point in terms of you know, developer velocity and productivity. And so um, a big goal of the platform teams more holistically is to really speed up that innovation cycle right. whilst increasing accuracy of the various different methodologies employed, right? Mm -hmm. And so the way we see it is we have these four major steps uh, within the development cycle of a machine learning or broadly speaking data science problem. You have exploratory data analytics, um, then this iterative prototyping phase, productionization, and then rollout and monitoring, and that closes the loop um, for kind of a new cycle to start off mm -hmm. um, if there is you know, a V2 that we want to progress in. And so building abstraction layers, um, higher level abstraction layers, and this is where uh, you know, a lot of the work that my team and collaborators mm -hmm. are coming in to play really helps to facilitate not, us, not only for us ourselves kind of this cycle, but really for the entirety of the company to mm -hmm. really go faster and faster around that loop. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, so you're primarily doing this uh, by hiring full stack engineer, full stack data scientists. They're not easy to find. Yep. Uh, and we throw that term around like it defines uh, concretely a, a specific set of skills, um, but not even, not every full stack data scientist is going to have the same strengths. Yep. How do you uh, grow your data scientists or if you, if you find folks that need support in one or more areas or how do you manage the kind of learning cycle for your team? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when we um, hire for these roles, we also hire complementary, of course, right? So mm -hmm. there would be some folks on the team who lean more towards the research side, um, and others who lean more towards the engineering and um, you know software development side, and folks that sit in between. Um, so that's one aspect. And then there's a very strong learning and teaching culture at yeah. Uber, really uh, continuously striving to improve um, uh, oneself. Um, and so we have a lot of programs, even within Uber, um, uh, educational programs, um, everything from introductory courses to machine learning, uh, all the way to domain experts, basically, who um, then give workshops um, and training sessions, hands-on, basically, courses. Um, uh, I've invested a lot in mentorship programs at Uber as well, building out a community across all of data science and analytics, um, where we then partner folks. And, and sometimes we also do 20% uh, projects uh, similar to what Google, for example, does, okay. uh, where we have people then uh, immersed into various different teams to get hand uh, uh experience, basically, in, in some of these domains. So yeah, I think continuous learning and teaching is something that's really, really important. Okay. And what are you excited for going forward? What's the future of data science platforms at Uber look like? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I see both at Uber as well as in the industry um, a big push towards these higher and higher level abstractions um, for platforms to really kind of commoditize it, to make it available um, to a broader audience beyond data science, machine learning engineers and engineers, more broadly speaking. Um, and so coming back to that um, four-step um, data science workflow or machine learning workflow that I described earlier, you know, one of the gaps that we saw is uh, that we didn't have any semi-automation or automation around uh, data exploration or insights generation as a whole. And that's something that actually goes well beyond data science or machine learning workflows, right? That's the first step of the four-step cycle. Exactly, the first step, right, where there is still a lot of uh, human hours that need to go into that to dig into the data, to understand and explore the data, and also for business analysts, right? A lot of the questions that they would be getting um, is, I have an important business KPI and it moved up or down, right? Investigate you know, all the various different slices and dices of the data on what might have happened, right? And so what we have been starting to work on is a proof of concept to actually have an algorithm automatically scan through our data and to surface a potentially interesting insights uh, to folks, uh, whether it's machine learning experts uh, or business analysts, for example. Uh, and they obviously would go and dig into some of these suggestions um, and, and understand them more deeply. But here we see a, a really large opportunity, not only to save people a lot of time, um, but also to really open up um, new insights that might not have been discovered previously. And this is some of the feedback that we're getting from our early adopters um, in this field, that uh, the machine was able to come up with interesting suggestions that they say wouldn't have come up themselves. 
Um, and so I think that really will, if successful, will revolutionize how we do data analytics at Uber and I think more broadly in the industry. Awesome, awesome. Well, friend, thanks so much for joining us here at TumulCon. Thanks for uh, having me. Great speaking with you. Thank you. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed our show straight from the main stage at TwimmelCon AI Platforms. For more information about today's show, visit TwimmelAI.com. And for more TwimmelCon coverage, visit TwimmelCon.com news. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.